Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for coming. I know it's a busy time. It's in the middle of your working day, and we are delighted that all of you could come and be with, her, with us here today. My name is Ruth Kattumuri. I'm the co-director of the Asia Research, India Observatory at the London School of Economics. The India Observatory and the IG Patel Chair was set up in 2006 in honor of IG Patel, and it was set up in partnership with the Reserve Bank of India and the State Bank of India. We are extremely grateful to the RBI and to the SBI for their gracious friendship and support all these years. The IG Patel Lecture Series is organized alternately between LSE and India. The first lecture was organized at LSE and was given by Montek Singh Alwalia. The second one was given by Nick Stern in New Delhi. The third by Amartya Sen at LSE. And the fourth was in Hyderabad by the former governor, Vaivi Reddy. And we are, we are honored to have Governor Subarao with us here today to give the fifth IG Patel lecture here at the LSE. Dr. Subarao became the 22nd governor of the Reserve Bank of India in September 2008, just a week before the global financial crisis erupted. He led the Reserve Bank, it, Bank's effort to mitigate the impact of, crisis, of the crisis on India and has been actively engaged in the G20's effort to coordinate an international response to the crisis. The challenges ahead for the Reserve Bank, as he sees them, are to bring inflation down, support the growth momentum of the Indian economy, take financial sector reforms forward, and deepen financial inclusion. Dr. Subarao has also served as Finance Secretary to the Government of India. He's been the Secretary to Prime, Minister, Prime Minister's Economic Advisory Council, and he was a lead economist in the World Bank during the late 90s and early 2000s. I am particularly struck by his strong academic background and commitment. He did his BSc honors in physics at the IIT Kharagpur, master's in physics from the Indian Institute of Technology, Kanpur. He also has an MS in economics from the Ohio State University. He, he was an Humphrey Fellow studying public finance at MIT in the 80s. And he has his PhD in economics from Andhra University, uh, where he did his thesis on fiscal reforms at the subnational level. He's also written and lectured extensively on issues in public finance, decentralization, and political economy of re reforms at national and international fora. While you absorb this information, I hand you over to Lord Meknath Desai to chair this lecture. Thank you very much. Uh, Ruth has said all that we need to say about our distinguished speaker, so I don't have to say very much. Um, I just want to say one thing that uh, we, we are, of course, here currently going through one of the deepest crises uh, that uh, we have noticed for a while. But you have to remember this is not a global crisis. This is a crisis of the Western world. The rest of them are doing perfectly well. Thank you very much. Uh, because, uh, because they happen to have uh, central bankers and financial regulators who knew how to do their job. Uh, and therefore, uh, while, while we are deeply in crisis with failing banks and uh, 
which we unfortunate taxpayers have to pay for, uh, uh, only the rich get uh, bailed out, not the poor, but that's a problem. Uh, but with, however, banks uh, in the so-called emerging world are doing very well. And I think you really have to study and appreciate the quality of leadership that there is in the emerging economies. And, of course, we have today one of the leading practitioners of the art of central banking. Uh, Dr. Subarao has been uh, at the helm of the RBI. And uh, I think I can say, uh, especially for all those people who are waiting to hear what he's going to do next week and uh, get out to short the rupee or not short the rupee, uh, A, he won't give anything away. the poor finance minister has found that out much to his uh, chagrin that he doesn't give anything away. Uh, but that is what a good central banker is all about. Uh, you, you, you can't be kind and be a central banker. Uh, and he's a lovely person and the soul of kindness, but I don't think he takes kindness to his office, uh, which is quite, quite right away to it. I won't stand any more in your way. Dr. Spurrow. Good afternoon, and thank you very much for inviting me to deliver the Ajit Patel Memorial Lecture. It's an honor to which I attach a lot of value. Dr. Ajit Patel represents a special bond between the Reserve Bank of India, which I represent, and the London School of Economics, where this lecture is instituted. He led both these institutions with enormous amount of dignity, distinction, grace, and humility. I know that is loved and respected by both our institutions. Because the occasion demands it, I want to say this. The Reserve Bank celebrated its Platinum Jubilee two years ago, and at the Platinum Jubilee celebrations, I said something which I want to repeat here. Those of you who have an interest in the history of science, would have known that Sir Isaac Newton, among other things, was also a very arrogant man. He had this tirade running with uh, Robert Hooke. And then um, when Isaac Newton came up with the theory of gravity, Robert Hooke wrote to him, lauding him for the theory of gravity. Newton, for all his arrogance, with very uncharacteristic humility, wrote back to Hooke. And he said, uh, I quote, If I've been able to see a little farther than others, it is because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. This is a statement I can relate to. As the governor of the Reserve Bank of India today, I owe an intellectual debt of gratitude to the extraordinary men who led the Reserve Bank through very challenging times. Among the most distinguished of them is Dr. I.G. Patel. I'm proud to be in the same lineage as him. Dr. Patel was an intellectual force behind many of India's crises. When we had the second oil shock in the late 70s, he was the governor of the Reserve Bank negotiating what was then the largest arrangement from the IMF for India. So I thought the best way I can honor the memory of a man who was so intellectually distinguished was to talk about 
today's macroeconomic challenges which I am trying to navigate. You all heard Ruth tell you when I took office as the governor of the Reserve Bank on the 5th of September 2008, that date is significant. I'll tell you why. A lot of people ask me, when is the crisis going to be over? <laughs> and uh, not many people have an answer for that. And those who think they know, they're not willing to stick their neck out. But today in this audience, I'm going to tell you the answer because I know it. <laughs> I, 5th of September 2008, I took office. On the 7th of September, Fannie and Freddie happened. On the 10th of September, AIG came to the brink of collapse. On the 16th of September 2008, Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed, uh, bringing the financial sector uh, to a tailspin. So, people in India think I brought on the crisis. <laughs> and uh, so if you draw the correlation, you know when the crisis is going to be over. I was appointed for a period of three years, so this guy brought the crisis on. It's going to be over. But the story doesn't end there. In 2011, when I was completing three years, the government reappointed me <laughs> for two more years. And lo and behold, two days after that appointment, the Eurozone crisis <laughs> blew out in full blue. So if you want to know when the crisis is going to be over, uh, you just have to know when I'm going to finish my job. Okay. Having told you that, now I want to tell you about uh, today's macroeconomic challenges for India. First, is it a cause for concern? If you look at the macro situation in India, growth has decelerated. This year we expect to be growing at about 5%, which is the lowest in a decade. Inflation has come off from the peak, but still just below 7%. It's still high and elevated and stubborn. We're going to have the highest current account deficit ever, historically the highest. Investment, most worryingly, investment rate has declined. So there's a lot to worry about the Indian economy. And I want you to look at the long-term growth rates of India, but just look at the second last bar there, which is India's growth performance in the five years before the crisis, 2003 to 2008. We clocked growth of 8.7% on the average. If you take just the three years before the crisis, 2005 to 2008, India grew at 9.5% on the average. That pre-crisis growth acceleration was celebrated in India. It is seen as India breaking away from the Hindu rate of growth. You see the first bar there, 3.5%. For about 30 years after the British left us, we were growing at 3.5%. And, and India thought that it was condemned, it was fated to grow no, no more than 3.5%. But when we started growing at 9.5% before the crisis, uh, it sort of triggered aspirations for double-digit growth in India. So the India growth story took on credibility and took on momentum uh, by that uh, pre-crisis growth performance. But today, as I told you, growth has moderated. Inflation is elevated and persistent. We have an 
Our balance of payments is under stress. The threat of twin deficits, large fiscal deficit and a high current account deficit, and investment has decelerated. So, in that context, I'm going to talk about three macroeconomic challenges uh, that the uh, Indian economy is confronting, and I will speak to them somewhat from the Reserve Bank's perspective. Those three are first managing the growth inflation dynamics, mitigating the vulnerability of the external sector, and managing the political economy of fiscal consolidation. On the first challenge, how do we manage the growth inflation dynamics? If you look at that chart there, which shows the growth trajectory from 2006-07 to date, uh, you see that before the crisis, we were going at 9.6%. Then there was a downturn because of the crisis. But then you see a very sharp recovery, a classic V-shaped recovery. We recovered ahead of most other countries. And then growth plummeted now in the last two years. In fact, if you look at it, in the first two years after the crisis, we were growing at 9%, which is comparable to the growth three years before the crisis. So the deceleration has actually come in the last two years. The question to ask is, why has growth slowed? Why has growth slowed in the last two years? To understand why growth has slowed in the last two years, you really have to understand what's accelerated growth in the pre-crisis period. There's a lot of factors attributed to the growth acceleration in the pre-crisis period. People talk about the economic reforms that India launched in the early 90s. People talk about India's integration with the global economy. People talk about rise of entrepreneurism. But underlying, underlying all those factors was the rapid growth in investment in India in the pre-crisis period, financed, importantly, by domestic savings. So investment picked up, financed by domestic savings. And that was aided by domestic and external competitiveness, improved financial intermediation, productivity increase, etc. So if that happened before the crisis, why is growth slowed now? For precisely the opposite reason, which is that investment has suddenly declined. And why is investment declining? Investment is declining because business confidence is quite low. Business sentiment is quite low, and business perception of profitability is quite low. And why is all this low? Because of a number of uh, structural factors, infrastructure constraints, governance concerns, etc. But you might well ask, how come all this happened suddenly? After all, you recovered from the crisis. Two years you did very well, but what happened in the last two years? It's somewhat of a more involved reasoning why we picked up growth immediately after the crisis, even as investment has slowed in those two years, consumption held up. And India's consumption, especially the rural consumption holding up, is a remarkable 
story of success about which I'll tell you later. But in the two years after the crisis, even as investment was decelerating, consumption held up and we kept up a fairly rapid pace of growth. But in the last two years, across the board, consumption, investment, net exports, all, all factors of demand had slowed. One other thing is that as much as global factors were responsible, I believe that a lot of domestic factors are equally responsible for today's downturn in India. Now, having told you the growth story, let me now tell you about the inflation story. Those, that's the trajectory of inflation starting October 2009. But just look at the top line. That's the headline inflation. Um, we had actually negative inflation for a few months in the crisis. Uh, but you see inflation picking up rather sharply. And stayed elevated there for about two years, March 2010, 2011. Only starting 2012, as inflation started coming down, it's coming down only very gradually. The more important thing is, what's driving inflation in India? Uh, I would say four factors are listed there. First is food inflation. As far as food inflation is concerned, there's the cyclical factors and there's the structural factors. The cyclical factors are quite easy to understand. There is... Uh, drought in parts of the country, floods in parts of the country, you have uh, onion prices shooting up all of a sudden, you have cereal prices, pulses prices going up, That's, that corrects, causes distress, but it corrects by itself. But what is more important is the structural component of food inflation. And this is the remarkable fact I was referring to earlier, which is that one of the silent big mega trends in India has been the shift in the terms of trade from urban to rural areas. Rural incomes have gone up by an impressive uh, rate. Rural wage levels in nominal terms over the last five years have been going up by 20%. Even if you take retail inflation of 10% in real terms, Rural wages are going up by 10%, which in many ways is a sign of success. So the structural food inflation we're having is a consequence of rural incomes going up, food habits changing, people eating more of protein, shifting from cereal to protein. People eat more of uh, eggs, more of meat, more of vegetables, more of fruit, drink more of milk. And that's the protein structural food inflation we're seeing today. That's one of the drivers of inflation. The second driver of inflation is global commodity prices, particularly the price of oil. We would have expected that given the tepid recovery in the advanced economies in the US, Japan, Europe, UK, everywhere, that commodity prices, especially oil prices, would soften. That softened a little bit but uh, they're firmed up again and they stay firm there, uh, whatever level. It's intriguing why they've not softened further, given uh, uh, the recession in parts of the rich world, tepid recovery in parts of the rich world. 
and that's because of financialization of commodities. There's so much liquidity in the global system that uh, that's going into speculation of uh, commodity prices, including the oil price. But returning to the India context, India imports a lot of oil. We import 80% of our oil requirement. We're the fourth largest oil importer in the world. So global price has been high. On top of that, the rupee has depreciated. So the imported rupee price of oil has been very high. And that's caused inflation. The government in India subsidizes uh, petroleum product prices, the administered prices. So inflation, instead of going directly through these prices, is going through the fiscal deficit route. And sadly, not sadly, but uh, regrettably or disappointingly, the demand adjustment that must come through higher prices does not come through because prices are administered. So even as global prices go up, even as the rupee price goes up, the demand doesn't adjust in India. The demand remains elevated. So that's the second and third drivers of inflation, the commodity prices and the fiscal deficit. And the fourth main driver of inflation is demand pressures. As I told you, rural wages have been going up by 20% in nominal terms, 10% in real terms. And imagine in an economy with a per capita income of $1,500, any increase in income quickly translates to increase in consumption because the marginal propensity to consume is quite high at that income level. And that's, that's what we've seen in India, that there's a lot of demand pressures which is uh, fueling inflation. So having told you the inf growth story, having told you the inflation story, what's the summary? The summary is that uh, the India growth inflation dynamics before the crisis and after the crisis are a study in contrast. Three years before the crisis, 2005 to 2008, the economy expanded, as I told you, by 9.5% on the average because of fixed investment taking place, because production capacity increasing, which matched with demand. Therefore, there was no inflation pressure. Two years following the crisis, even as investment had declined, consumption held up, therefore growth was high, but inflation caught up with us. Over the last two years, investment has decelerated, growth, uh, consumption too is uh, moderating, net exports have decelerated, therefore uh, growth is going to an all-time low, 5%. And why has this happened? This is happening, as I told you, because of uh, vacillating commitment to economic reforms, governance concerns, and, of course, uh, the global outlook. What's the Reserve Bank done to control inflation? The Reserve Bank did what any other central bank does, which is to tighten monetary policy. We raised interest rates. We raised the bank's reserve requirements for much of 2010 and 2011. And uh, has the Reserve Bank succeeded in controlling inflation? I'm an interested party, but uh, I believe we have. 
you know, inflation was uh, 11%. It's now below 7%. It's, it's stubborn, coming down only very slowly, but a big drop from 11% to below, six, below 7%. Since this is a school of economics, uh, there is an Indian paradox here, which is that even as our growth has moderated to 5%, which we believe is significantly below our potential, inflation is still elevated. If you compare India to other peer emerging economies, they also saw their growth moderating, but inflation had also come down. India is quite contrary, which is that even as our growth had come down, our inflation has not come down. And why? Uh, that's because of very special India features, which is that the prices of non-tradables, such as wages, have gone up much more than tradables. There are infrastructure bottlenecks. There's demand-supply imbalances. The rupee has depreciated much more than other peer emerging economies, and we have a higher fiscal deficit. So all these factors make India quite unique in the growth inflation dynamics. So what's the, what's, what's the story about managing the growth inflation dynamics? The Reserve Bank, as I told you, tightened policy, and we've been criticized. And the criticism is part of the game for a public policy institution like the Reserve Bank. But I want to tell you about two strands of criticism and the Reserve Bank's response to that. Before that, you know the classic dilemma of a central bank, much more of, a reserve, of the Reserve Bank of India, which is that we have one instrument, the interest rate. With that one in, in, instrument of the interest rate, you have to encourage savings, and you also have to encourage investment. But savers want high interest rate. Investors want to borrow money, they want a low interest rate. So with one instrument available with you, how do you meet these two conflicting goals of giving a higher interest rate to savers and a lower interest rate to borrowers? That's the classic dilemma of uh, a central bank, but much more so for the Reserve Bank, because one of the things we need to do to encourage investment is to encourage saving. The reason India's saving is going down is because the savings rate in the formal financial sector are not high enough in real terms. So, for the last three years, the Reserve Bank had to strike a balance between um, supporting growth and controlling inflation. Two main streams of criticism. The first criticism against the Reserve Bank has been that people have said, look, you raised interest rates, you ran a very tight policy, you've not been able to bring inflation down, but you've uh, ended up stifling growth. If you look at the numbers, that's reasonably valid criticism. I, want, I can offer a, res a response to that at several levels. First, of course, as I told you, inflation has come off from the peak. Second, we don't know the counterfactual. We don't know what the inflation trajectory would have been 
if the Reserve Bank uh, had not acted as it did. Third, and more importantly, I want to say that it's not possible to bring inflation down without sacrificing some growth. You just cannot bring inflation down without, uh, without forfeiting some growth. But again, you have to realize that that growth sacrifice is only in the short term. In the medium term, low inflation, price stability is very important for sustained growth because only in an environment of price stability that investors and consumers can make informed choices. There is another response I want to give to this. Those of you who are familiar with the debate in India, uh, if you listen to the English media or even to the vernacular media, you see this um, pro-growth lobby very articulate. Uh, people talking about why the Reserve Bank is hurting growth by keeping interest rates high and why it must bring interest rates down. The lobby, the constituency, that is hurt by inflation, that's not hurt. It's the hundreds of millions of poor people in, in the country who are hurt by inflation. Again, as students of economics, you know that inflation is the most egregious tax. It hurts the poor people the most. Those poor people who are hurt by inflation are not able to join in this debate about growth and inflation. And I believe as a public policy institution, the Reserve Bank has an obligation to be sensitive to the voice, the silent voice, of the hundreds of millions of poor people are hurt by inflation. So that's my response to the first criticism. The second criticism is slightly more involved, but uh, this is the essence of it. People have said, look, if you look at India's inflation, it is uh, triggered, fueled by supply-side shocks, by food pressures, by oil price pressures, by commodity price pressures, and monetary policy, tightening interest rates, is not an appropriate instrumentality to combat inflation driven by supply shocks. You only end up hurting growth. That is the criticism. And here is my response. It is true, it is true that there are supply shocks fueling inflation in India, but importantly, there are also demand pressures to believe that this episode of inflation we've been experiencing over the last three years is only because of supply shocks, I think, will be completely wrong. There are very strong demand pressures, and there's any amount of evidence for that. The pricing power the corporates enjoyed, the very high current account deficit we are having today, the uh, output gap, uh, that existed in the economy, the rapid growth in uh, consumption demand because of wage pressures. These are all evidence of demand pressures. So to believe that India's inflation is driven only by supply shocks and the Reserve Bank has no role to play, I think would be wrong. Also, I believe, and I believe 
majority of the Reserve Bank believes that no matter what the driver of inflation, whether it's supply shocks or demand pressures, if inflation persists for a long enough time, inflation expectations get anchored and then inflation can get generalized. So no matter what the driver of inflation, it is the responsibility of the central bank, of the monetary authority to be the first line of defense and break those inflation expectations. So that's my response to this second criticism. So far I've spoken to you about the first challenge, how do we manage the growth inflation dynamics. I'm two more to go, they'll be shorter. The second challenge I want to talk to you about is how do we mitigate the vulnerability of the external sector? So what is the external sector problem? The external sector problem is that we are having a very large current account deficit. Last year, CAD was 4.2% of GDP, historically the highest. This year, 2012-13, we expect current account deficit to be even higher than that. To put that in perspective, let me tell you, I talked to you about the 1991 reforms. For about 20 years after the 91 reforms, our external sector was very robust, very safe, very healthy. And it was safe, healthy, robust, in spite of India integrating with the global economy in this 20 years, which means that our external sector was strong. It is a bulwark against constraints in other parts of the macroeconomy. But over the last two years, the balance of payments has started developing some strains. And why? Why has the current account deficit widened? I mean, if you, you can think of it in mathematical terms, current account deficit has widened because exports have fallen or have not grown enough, and imports have grown much more than exports. But if you look behind the numbers, exports, of course, have not grown in part because demand around the world is very subdued. People say, oh my God, your, your currency is depreciated, so you must be having competitive advantage. No, I don't believe so. You can't get export competitiveness through a weak currency. I will speak to that issue. But imports tell a more interesting story. If you look at the composition of India's imports, first is oil. As I told you, oil is price inelastic. Even if the global price goes up, there's no demand adjustment because consumers don't feel the punch of the high oil price. So oil prices have gone up, rupees depreciated, so oil import bill has gone up. But a more interesting story is gold, gold imports. Last year, in 2011-12, we saw gold imports of $40 billion. This year, 2012-13, roughly of the same order. This is much more. Indians have you know, traditionally, historically, a passion for gold, but this goes much beyond that passion, uh, this uh, abnormal import of gold. And this is, again, a consequence of high inflation. 
people are hedging against inflation. There is no other financial asset in the country that gives comparable real return. So people have resorted to gold imports. If you knock out oil and gold, actually, India, instead of having a more than 4% current account deficit, will actually have a 4% current account surplus. So that's, uh, the, that's how big oil and gold imports are. So what's been the result of this uh, huge import bill and the increase in current account deficit? Quite obviously, the depreciation of the rupee. From 1st April 2011 till, uh, say, uh, end February 2013, in a matter of about 23 months, the rupee depreciated by about 20% in nominal terms and also depreciated in real terms. And you all know the problems of uh, rupee depreciation. It uh, exacerbates inflation. It uh, mm, increases the government's import bill, etc. And of course, it erodes your external payment situation. It erodes the confidence of uh, potential lenders and investors in the Indian economy. There are actually three concerns three concerns about India's current account deficit. The first is the quantum of CAD, second is the quality of CAD, and the third is the financing of the CAD. On the quantum of CAD, the Reserve Bank's studies show that the sustainable current account deficit for India is 2.5% of GDP. Now, in an odd year, in an occasional year, Maybe you can exceed that. But if you keep exceeding your sustainable level of CAD year on year on year, you obviously are piling up uh, external liabilities. Again, another Indian conundrum here. Again, I wouldn't say it anywhere, but this is a school of economics, so I want to say it here. A CAD, high CAD is bad. But a high CAD in a slowing economy is particularly bad. And you know that in a slowing economy, the CAD must be self-correcting. Import demand must come down, and therefore the CAD must come down by itself. That's not happened in India. Again, because of uh, India exceptionalism, as I told you, oil is price inelastic, oil import bill. Gold import bill is in part a consequence of inflation. And so people are hedging against inflation, oil, and gold imports, and that's causing the high CAD. And high CAD, even though growth is coming down. That's the concern about the quantity of CAD. The quality of CAD is this. The problem is this. I would not worry so much about a high current account deficit if that current account deficit is a consequence of people importing capital goods. But if people are importing gold and you're having a current account deficit, that's particularly egregious. That's the problem about the quality of CAD. The third component there about financing of the CAD, not only are we having a large CAD, but increasingly we're financing our CAD through volatile flows. Ideally, 
You want to finance your current account deficit through stable foreign direct investment or to some extent stable portfolio investment. But if your CAD is being financed through what are clearly volatile flows which come in today, go out tomorrow, you're setting up yourself for instability. And that's the concern about the financing of the CAD. So quantum of CAD, quality of CAD, and the financing of the CAD. What is the Reserve Bank's dilemma in this? I mean, the current account deficit is a problem, but the Reserve Bank has a particularly special problem, which is that when we started easing, when we reduced interest rates, commentators, analysts have challenged us about the wisdom of reducing interest rates at a time when you yourself are admitting that your CAD is going to be high. In fact, some people have asked me, are you stupid that you're reducing interest rates when you, you're saying that CAD is going to go up and why are you reducing interest rates? We had to do it taking into account the growth inflation dynamics and also because we believe that the, the pass-through from CAD to inflation, even as much as it is there, may not be as strong as people think it is. The criticism has been mainly on two grounds. People have said, if you reduce interest rates, import demand will go up, and therefore the CAD will worsen. Second, people have said, if you reduce interest rates, the differential between you and advanced economies will narrow, and therefore capital will flow or the capital will not come in. Either way, it is going to be detrimental to managing your balance of payments. Our explanation has been that in India, the propensity to import out of borrowed money is lower, excuse me, is lower, yeah, is lower compared to the propensity to import out of increase in income. So people don't borrow and import so much. People import for consumption when they see their incomes going up. The explanation for the interest rate differential, you all understand the argument, which is that if interest rate differential is narrowed, you become that much less attractive for capital to come in. But we want capital to come in to finance a current account deficit. Our explanation has been that you have debt flows and you have equity flows. And India has traditionally uh, depended more on equity flows than debt flows. And equity flows are not so sensitive to interest rate differential. Indeed, you can argue that if interest rate comes down, you might actually attract more equity flows. Uh, and we've seen a bit of that in India. These have involved arguments, but I just thought I should give you a flavor of this to give you a sense of the dilemma uh, that uh, we have to manage. There's only lots of things I can say on this, but I want to make a comment on currency wars. Uh, it's quite unrelated to uh, the India challenge, uh, but I want to make a comment on currency wars because it's so much a part of our consciousness of you uh, as uh, stakeholders in an academic institution 
we as uh, policy makers in the real world. What is this currency was? Currency was is competitive devaluation of currencies to see that your demand, your economic demand is contained internally, that you export more, import less, you contain, you, it's, it's somewhat of, it's, it's a way of protectionism. It's macroeconomic protectionism. Now, why this currency war started uh, you know, in the media, in uh, some of the international meetings, and now everybody agreed that the, the use of this phrase is quite unfortunate. What is the position of the emerging economies on, I will continue to use the phrase because it is so much more easy to communicate uh, using that phrase. What is the story, what is the story of emerging economies on this currency wars? What they say is the following. Look, advanced economies, you have eased so much, such extraordinary easing. There is so much liquidity in the global system that's not being absorbed in your economies. That's therefore coming into our economies as capital flows, which we are not able to absorb either. Our currencies are appreciating. That currency appreciation is quite unrelated to our economic fundamentals. It's eroding our competitiveness. That's the story of the emerging economies. What's the story of the advanced economies? The story of the advanced economies, to summarize, is the following, which is that uh, quantitative easing is driven by domestic policy considerations. It is a means of giving domestic stimulus to the economy. Debasing the currency is not an objective of the policy. If the currency depreciates, if the dollar, yen, sterling pound, or the euro, or whatever advanced economy currency has depreciated, it is an incidental byproduct of policy driven by some other consideration. They also say, advanced economies, they say that, look, capital flows move because of push factors and pull factors. Push factors in the advanced economies, pull factors in the emerging economies, and uh, everyone, most notably the US Fed says that, look, you're getting capital flow coming in not because of push factors, but because of pull factors, because of the promise of return in your economy. And the third thing, they also say, and I think some of them have said it quite openly, they say that, look, the stability and growth of advanced economies is important for the stability and growth of the world. So if we're doing something for the stability and growth of advanced economies is good for the world. It's a positive spillover impact. So that's the story of the advanced economies. But we all understand that it's a zero-sum game. You can, everybody cannot devalue and benefit. Everybody loses. This is not the first time that uh, there has been uh, easy monetary policies. 
But why is this talk now about currency wars? There are several, several factors that are unique to this situation. First, the quantitative easing. The size and duration have been extraordinary. Uh, the amount of quantitative easing done by the U.S. Fed and other advanced economy central banks. Second, the slow pickup in demand. Uh, the recession following the financial crisis has been quite extended. And third, the spillovers from advanced economies to the rest of the world have been much stronger than before because the world is more integrated than before. And so we keep talking about this in the G20, and I believe they talk about it in the G7, actually to contain to contain this negative uh, talk about currency wars, both the G7 and the G20 issued communication in February, strongly condemning uh, currency wars and also affirming that no country is actually uh, uh, participating in this warfare. So coming back to the India story, uh, after making that uh, detour to the currency wars, uh, for our external sector management, uh, we need to reduce the current account deficit, but you can't reduce that in the short term. That is a problem for the medium term. In the short term, we have to finance it through stable flows. So that's the second challenge about mitigating the external sector vulnerability, and I want to talk briefly about the third challenge, which is how to manage the political economy of fiscal consolidation. I must explain why I worded it like this. Why, why did I say political economy of fiscal consolidation? Why did I not say how do you just manage fiscal consolidation? That's deliberate. I believe that the economics of fiscal consolidation are quite straightforward. Uh, there's nothing involved there. What's challenging, what's difficult, as we're seeing everywhere in the world, including in this country, is managing the politics of uh, uh, fiscal consolidation. And the why is fiscal deficit a problem? That is standard textbook economics, but we've experienced that in India. We're still experiencing that in India. Fiscal deficits are bad because they crowd out private investment. They threaten debt sustainability. Growing interest burden can eat into discretionary public expenditure. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if the government keeps borrowing year on year, their interest payments keep going up. So if the government keeps paying higher and higher interest, the amount available for spending on other things is gradually getting reduced. And we've seen that happen in India. And importantly, Fiscal deficits can also cause balance of payments problems. There's a spillover, which is actually what happened in 1991 in India, which is that we had an extended period of fiscal profligacy, which spilled over into the external sector and manifested as a balance of payments crisis. And importantly, from the Reserve Bank perspective, Fiscal deficit is bad because it exacerbates inflation pressure. 
And uh, if you've seen the Reserve Bank documents over the last two years, one thing we've consistently said is that it's very important for the government to make a credible fiscal adjustment in order for inflation to come down on a sustainable basis. So, the fiscal deficit problem of India, which first is we have a large fiscal deficit. Uh, actually, we were on a credible path of fiscal consolidation before the crisis. We had a Fiscal Responsibility and Budget Management Act. Fiscal deficit was coming down, but then it got interrupted by the crisis, and then not only crisis driven stimulus, but a lot of other stimulus got added. I think it was Milton Friedman who said there is nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. So government start this and uh, it uh, adds, keeps on going and becomes a permanent expenditure commitment. Not only does India have a large fiscal deficit, it's also concerned about what we use the fiscal deficit for. If, you, if the government borrows money and builds roads or builds ports or builds infrastructure or invests in education or health, that's good. That's investment. But if the government borrows and uses that money for paying salaries, for paying pensions, and for making the interest payments, that's very bad. So in India, not only do we have a fiscal deficit, but we have a deficit on the current account of the budget. So fiscal deficits in India are much more egregious. And third is about the quality of fiscal adjustment. I know that there's a debate going on in this country about uh, what Chancellor Osborne must be doing. And uh, every country that's going through this process has a very emotive, very politically sensitive debate on what should be done to make the fiscal adjustment. There are only two things you can do. You can raise taxes or you can compress expenditure. And it's also important what expenditure you're cutting. Are you cutting expenditure on child nutrition in order to manage your fiscal uh, stunts? Are you cutting expenditure on salaries? It's very easy, it's not very easy to cut expenditure, but given that you have to cut expenditure, it's easier to cut expenditure on child nutrition than on salaries. And that's what happens when fiscal adjustments are made. Productive expenditure gets sacrificed, unproductive expenditure gets retained. So, in India, last, last month, the finance minister uh, gave the budget for the next fiscal year. Dr. Desai was there uh, commenting on the budget after it was done. Again, once again, um, the government has chosen to embrace fiscal responsibility, return to a path of consolidation. Fiscal deficit is set to come down from 53 to 4.8%. But one thing, again, a question of involved economics. Some people have said, how can you cut fiscal deficit at a time when your growth is going down? When your growth is subdued, is this the time to do it? The debate in the UK is about that only, right? The, the, the 
raised that question in India also. You did not cut your fiscal deficit when you were growing at 9%, but now when you're growing at 5%, you want to cut your fiscal deficit? Are you, are you not going to drive growth down further? Not necessarily. It's not as if there is a direct correlation between fiscal deficit coming down and growth coming down. If the government does intelligent, sensible, sensitive expenditure switching from unproductive to productive expenditure, they can simultaneously do both fiscal consolidation and also not hurt growth. So, finally, to sum up on this challenge, the politics of fiscal consolidation are quite compelling, quite challenging. Both elements of fiscal consolidation, tax increase and expenditure compression, are not politically popular. And politicians as a class, not just in India, not just in the UK, but in all democracies, they have a very high discount rate. Politicians typically have a higher discount rate than most of us. So fiscal consolidation is a problem. But it is very, very important that for sustaining growth with price stability, India firmly, credibly embraces fiscal consolidation. So those are the three challenges that I talked about. And uh, I'll just go to the last slide. I, to sum up, I want to tell you that uh, the India growth story is still credible. In spite of all the concerns that I had spoken about over the last uh, 45 minutes, uh, the India growth story is still credible. When I go to international meetings and meet the other central bank governors or finance ministers, or people say, oh, India, great, you're growing at 5%, 6%, you know, we, we, we are in a recession. My point is that growing at 5%, 6% is good, but not good enough for India. We need to be growing at 7%, 8%, hopefully at 9%, 10%, year on year for 10 to 15 years, like China did. If you have to bring hundreds of millions of poor people out of poverty, you can't do it if you're growing at 5%, if you're growing at 6%. You need to grow at 7%, 8%, and even higher. And I also believe that the long-term growth drivers of India are intact. The entrepreneurism, the opportunity for productivity catch-up, the demographic dividend, democracy, a decent legal system, all the ingredients necessary for sustained, stable growth are intact. But I also want to say that the India growth story is not inevitable. If we don't do the right things, if we don't do the right things in the right time, we will squander a historic opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Governor. Thank you. Now, uh, if this was India, I would now give a long summary of what the Governor said. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't do that. Uh, we have some time for a question because uh, I have to tell you the most binding constraint in the entire world is time in an LSE room. Uh, 
because, uh, you know, they, they start getting crowding outside and uh, asking us to go out. So we have a few minutes, so please, uh, there's some time for questions. I should also say that these have to be questions. In the House of Lords, every question has to start by saying, does the speaker agree or not? Don't give us a summary of what you think he said. <laughs> Lady there. There's probably mics which will not work and you'll push the button, I'll not push the button, but go ahead. Dr. Christina Yencha, yeah. I work in the parliament, advise MP on business. Don't worry about that. Okay, Just that's ask fine. The question. And uh, my question to you is, there has been lots of discussion in the UK about effective ways to support small, medium-sized enterprise, especially financing them. So could you possibly give us some effective measures from the Indian perspectives? Thank you. Okay. you have Medium-sized enterprise. Yeah, small and medium enterprises. Let's take two or three questions. Yeah, the gentleman here. Wait for the mic. Don't tell me who you are. Just ask the question. Uh, thank you for your talk. If, um, if you take the uh, pool of foreign currency reserves in India, what proportion of that is required to uh, be there as a, as a safety measure for any future balance of payments issues, if any? And my point in asking that is what portion of that foreign currency reserve could you use for infrastructure spending? It, it, various views on that, but I'm interested in yours. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman there uh, in the middle. No. In the middle. Yeah. No, no, not you. Not you, the one behind you. I was just wondering if the governor might talk a little more about uh, the recent budget. How, um, how do you, as an expert in fiscal policy as well, analyse the quality of, of the budget that's just been announced? That would be very interesting. Thank you. Okay. Those three questions. Can we take those three questions? Yeah. Then we'll, we'll go for them more later on. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. The first question from that uh, young lady was about uh, India's support for medium and small enterprises. Like everywhere else, particularly in India, we believe that uh, supporting medium and small enterprises is very important for uh, economic growth, especially for uh, equitable economic growth across, uh, you know, with reasonable equity across the country. And I don't know about other countries in the world, but in India, it is the SME sector which uh, actually is exporting. 80% of the exports are from the SME sector. So for our export performance, for employment reasons, for backward reason development, for decentralized development, the SME sector is very important. And historically, there have been some uh, positive bias towards financing for the SME sector, but uh, with liberalization, most of those uh, uh, affirmative action programs for uh, supporting the SME sector have been withdrawn. Um, nevertheless, I think it's very important that we continue to emphasize development of the SME sector, which is crucial for our growth and for poverty reduction. I, uh, my apologies for such a generalized response, but I did not get uh, any specific question there. This question about the size of the foreign exchange reserves, uh, you know, India does not, uh, uh, we do not have a view on what is a safe level of foreign exchange reserves. Uh, but you must remember that our foreign, I think the latest economist had 
countries and foreign exchange reserves. Um, our foreign exchange reserves are just short of about $300 billion. We published the numbers. You must remember that our foreign exchange reserves are a consequence of a current account deficit, not a current account surplus. So our reserves are not the same as reserves of China, for example. Okay. Now, there are liabilities against our reserves, and we have no view about what is a safe level of reserves. Another thing I want to say is that when we were a, a $1 trillion economy back about seven, eight years ago, we had foreign exchange reserves of over $300 billion. Today we are a $1.8 or $1.9 trillion economy, and we have foreign exchange reserves less than $300 billion. So I believe that uh, it's futile to talk about what is a safe level. My impression on the budget, uh, you know, certainly I, I think uh, from our fiscal consolidation point of view, it is very responsible given the um, given the extraordinary timing of the budget, not only were the macroeconomic challenges complex, but even the political democratic calendar uh, was compelling. Uh, given all that, I think the finance ministers uh, delivered a very responsible budget. 4.8%, you can quibble about uh, how that's, been, that's being achieved by tax increases, expenditure compression, or by disinvestment, what we call disinvestment, etc. But given the circumstances, I think it's uh, very measured and responsible. And if it delivers on that, from the Reserve Bank perspective, there will be some softening impact on inflation. Good. Uh, now, uh, gentlemen there, on the edge, yeah, the, uh, yeah, here, yeah. Yes, I'll... Yeah. Uh, thank you for your speech. Uh, I just had a question, like, for example, we were discussing that the macroeconomic indicators are not very positive, but currently the stock market is completely contradicting this, and the Sensex is at a nearly all-time high. So what do you think is triggering this, and do you think this is what the economy needs to bounce back and encourage further investment and growth? Okay, that's good. Now, uh, gentlemen at the back... I've got to be equitable. Not enough questions for women. So, yeah. yeah. You called a gentleman. Yeah. Come on, uh, please, please go ahead. Sir, uh, you initially started off by talking about growth going down because of uh, lack of investments. Do you, do you see the government, I mean, with the fiscally responsible budget, have they done enough or are they doing enough on the investment side to encourage investments, both private and as well as on the public side? Okay. Uh, who is going to ask the next question? Uh, there's a lady there in the middle here. The middle here, the, you know, back, yeah. There she is. What's your name? Um, India's uh, corporate bond market is not as dynamic as the equity market. Do you have any plans to infuse more activity there? Do you think it will help with some of the growth challenges that we have? Good. Three questions. Uh, thank you very much. On the first question about the stock market, why is it all-time high or whatever, as the Reserve Bank Governor, I am expected not to take notice of the stock market. 
Okay. So <laughs> I have no comment on that, but you know, it's a mugs game trying to predict uh, how the stock market is moving. I think it's the latest economists they were talking about how the Dow Jones has moved, and uh, you know that's quite unrelated to uh, the economic fundamentals in the U.S. But uh, I really have no informed or educated view on that. On investment, yes, that's a very important question. Uh, the twelfth plan, which is. Uh, 2012 to 2017 plans an investment of a trillion dollars uh, in uh, infrastructure in the Indian economy. Just to give you a sense of that, trillion dollars means that investment in infrastructure, which is currently about two to three percent of GDP, has to go up to nine to ten percent of GDP per year, and that's the size of the problem. The government have said that. Uh, Roughly half of that investment will come from the government. The rest will have to come from the private sector. But experience of the last five years, I'm slightly out of touch. I moved away from the government, has shown that even as this PPP model, public-private partnership model, has gotten off the ground, uh, there's lots of implementation challenges. So there are problems there both of resources and of managing the implementation. But I do want to leave that question with the thought that for almost every macroeconomic problem, growth, inflation, current account deficit, competitiveness, whatever, uh, bridging our infrastructure deficit is going to be a very, very important uh, um, solution. On the Corporate bond market, that's a very interesting, very relevant question. Um, in India, the corporate bond market is regulated by SEBI, not by the Reserve Bank. But over the last five years, to the extent that the Reserve Bank regulates the financial markets, we've done quite a lot to um, deepen the market. However, much to our dismay, disappointment, the market is not picked up. And uh, with trying to understand why there is, is it a supply problem or a demand problem. Again, I want uh, everyone to understand the implications of the question that young lady asked, which is that if you're going to invest a trillion dollars in infrastructure and a lot in non-infrastructure but investment, that's a huge amount of money. Infrastructure typically requires long-term finance. In India, the long-term financial markets are not developed. The pension funds, provident funds, insurance funds, they're not developed. So the burden of financing infrastructure, which is long-term finance, is falling on banks which are not, not good, designed no. to finance long-term. So not only do we have a problem of financing infrastructure, <coughs> we have a problem of managing the ALM, asset liabilities, of the banking system. And as the regulator of the banking system, the Reserve Bank is uh, engaged in that. The pressure from everybody is, why are you being so insensitive? We're sitting in the Reserve Bank. You must relax more so that banks lend more for infrastructure. We understand the need for that. But we also understand the need for keeping our banks safe and stable. So we've got to draw the balance there. Good. I think I'll take two more questions, then we have to stop. Uh, gentlemen there, because on, I have to be fair about different sides. Yeah. 
Sir, I have a question on ownership of banks. Because last week, uh, Governor of Bank of England came in praise, saying that uh, privatization is definitely required for the taxpayers' own banks. So what is your view on ownership of banks, sir? Okay. What is the question? What, what is your view question? on ownership of banks, sir? Private or uh, public? All right. Gentlemen here. Yeah, you. Yeah, use the mic. Sir, do you think uh, having a sovereign bond will help encourage a corporate bond market? Yeah. Okay. I can't take more because we really are short of time. Yeah. Thank you very much. On my views on the ownership of banks or the reserve banks' views, the Indian banking system today has public sector banks, private banks, and foreign banks. Public sector banks, uh, I think, um, control about 70% of the business than the foreign banks and the private banks. We released guidelines for licensing new banks in the private sector two weeks ago. Those banks are going to be in the private sector. The idea being that India needs more banks, India needs greater competition in the banking space. India has many banking challenges, including financial inclusion, and for that, a lot of business experience, a lot of innovative leadership is necessary. As far as, as much as we want more private banks to come in, I also want to say this, that the stereotype view that public sector banks are less efficient than private banks is not true. That's the, if you're doing research, that's the hypothesis you will start with, right? And that's the hypothesis you will try to disprove. But actually, we've done that in the Reserve Bank, and what we found is that efficiency of banks is quite independent of ownership. Some of the most efficient banks are in the public sector. Some of the most inefficient banks are in the private sector. So our view is that India needs public sector banks, private banks, foreign banks, and uh, we need more competition. On the sovereign bond, uh, I have no views uh, at the moment. Um, the government, I know that when the finance minister came here last month, there was some discussion about that. As in when um, the idea uh, crystallizes into a policy option, we'll come back to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I know there are, many more, there are always more questions than we can answer. I have one more a pleasant duty to do, and which is to ask the governor to release this book, Economics, Policy, and Development, An Intellectual Journey of Dr. I.G. Patel. It's a collection of his articles edited by two of his associates, Professor Dina Karkate and Governor uh, Reddy. ask him to do something really difficult. And that is it. Thank you. Thank you very much and thank you all for coming. Thank you. Well, just one moment of thanks for everybody. Thank you, Governor, for this um, talk. As you could see, the response and the questions, that it was um, extremely important for us to hear this. Thanks to Meghnath for stepping in when we needed him. 
as ever the LSE man. Uh, thanks to uh, High Commissioner Jamin Bhagwati and Rita and all the uh, Indian banking heads in London. Thanks, uh, thank you all for coming. I'd also like to thank Kevin Shields, Keith Tritton, and conferences for helping arrange this event.